Hello and welcome to the PGR Cast, a podcast about life as a postgraduate research student. Today marks the first entry into our new series on PGR pastimes, where we'll be chatting with other postgrads about the things we do beyond academia to keep, well, some semblance of sanity. Before we get into today's episode, I'd just like to say that this was only supposed to be a quick one-episode Q&A about the game Dungeons & Dragons. However, as it turns out, Olivia had quite a lot to ask about how it all works and why so many postgrads are getting into tabletop role-playing games in general. So what we've decided is that we're going to split this interview across two episodes. Part one will air today, and then, as a special treat, we're going to release part two in two weeks' time, on Tuesday the 14th of March. So if you enjoy this episode, then don't worry, you're not going to have to wait a whole month to get your second dose of PGRs talking about RPGs. Now, with that out of the way, roll for initiative, I guess. Hi, and welcome back to PGR Class. I'm Olivia, pronouns she, her. Um, I'm a PhD student in civil engineering, and I have never played D&D before. And hello, I am Rory. I use he, they pronouns. I'm a PhD in glaciology. And yeah, I, I got into got into playing D&D and general kind of role-playing games during my PhD. And we are joined once again by Lou Macy. Hi everyone, I'm Lou, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the postgrad education officer at Bristol SU. I have played some role-playing games before, but never D&D. So there we go. We've got, we've got a real mix here today. Which is ideal, because sort of my, my vague thought process going into this podcast is that I've met a lot of different PGRs in my kind of six years in Bristol, who at some point they've just embraced they're in a nerd. They've embraced the fact that, yes, I've committed a reasonable proportion of my life to studying something intensely, and I'm going to lose all shame about trying anything else. I'm going to join a brass band. I'm going to start going to Comic-Con. I'm going to learn new board games. And so you know, we, on this show, we talk about the whole PGR experience, and I feel that we've not really talked so much about hobbies, what people do in their spare time. So yeah, I thought it'd be nice to have a little chat with you both about one specific hobby that is increasingly popular, especially amongst the kind of PGR community? Yeah, definitely. I'm excited. I think it's one of those things that once you once you get into it and once you get started, whenever you find anyone else who does it, it's it's such a good conversation starter. And it's such a good way to to like make new friends, basically, which sounds really cheesy, but it is because I feel like everyone who plays it loves it so much that there's just endless conversations to be had about it, really. And there's nothing wrong with always wanting to make new friends as well, especially when you share a common interest. Um, I guess because I'm the one who doesn't know anything much about D&D. Um, I've heard about it. I'm really interested in it. I think it sounds like loads and loads of fun. Um, but I haven't found my campaign. Is that the right terminology? I Yeah, thumbs up. Okay, cool. So if you could, I don't know, explain how, how do you start? How do you begin? And also maybe what exactly is it at the same time? How do D&D? How to D&D, precisely. Um, wow. Well, I mean, I guess there are, there are two ways that you can really get into it, really. Um, either starting a campaign when when it's already going um so joining a campaign at a later date or starting one afresh with with other people that are 
either playing for the first time or have maybe played before, but they're starting a, a, a brand new game. Rory, I don't know if you want to maybe explain a bit more about like what what a campaign is. So yeah, I um I was inducted into the cult of D and D by a friend of mine from uni who had been playing for years. Um, and basically, we didn't start with the campaign. We started with what's known as a one shot, which is a mini story all carried out in one day. So whereas kind of if you think like Stranger Things, the game that people are playing in that, if you've seen the show, they kind of they meet up every week and they play a bit of story. And when it gets to the end of their allotted time, they just drop it and they come back. Um, I think that's generally how they work. Maybe yeah. this is my Stranger Things knowledge lacking. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while. Um but yeah, so that's sort of that's the, the concept of a campaign is an ongoing thing. You'll be using the same characters, you're in the same world, often, and it's either a series of small adventures or one large arc or a combination of the two. Yeah, I started in a one-shot that my friend, being the devious person he is, ended in a cliffhanger. <gasps> and then he was like, Any of you who are interested in playing more DD and you would like to find out the resolution <laughs> of this story, uh, you can join me. You no, know, we'll we'll set up a, a Facebook chat and a doodle poll and we'll work out when you're free for meeting once every couple of weeks. And that was in lockdown and the same campaign is still going on. So, yeah. Um, oh, wow. So they can they can last a long time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I wasn't expecting this one to last quite so long, but I think it's as the dungeon master, that's the person running the campaign or game master if you're playing a different kind of role-playing game. Uh, you can get carried away with writing if you're making this large, expansive world and you're drawing from different stories and video games and film, things that you enjoy and you want to fit in. Uh, not to mention if you have lots of players with their own backstories that you want to somehow weave into the narrative, it it can get away from you. Which is <laughs> the, the impre- impression I've got, he's still, he's still enjoying it, but he was also not expecting to have so many loose ends still two years down the line. <laughs> That's very fair. And like thinking about it, a one shot is such a good way to get someone started with D&D because it's it's an introduction to the world. It's an introduction to maybe character creation, the game mechanics, and it's it's an introduction to the story. And like, what is D&D if not the, the most extravagant form of storytelling that there is, really? And it's also a lot. Uh, it's a much smaller commitment than going straight into a campaign and you get kind of five five sessions in and you realize that actually I'm not enjoying playing a paladin. I wish I were a barbarian. I wish I were a bard. I wish I had gone down this route. So if a, a one-shot gives you a chance to test something out, see if you enjoy the kind of character that you've built and if you've bonded with them enough to want to carry on playing with them. What was the first character you said? Paladin. What's that? Uh, so- <laughs> Wow. Okay, time to talk about characters, I guess. So, <laughs> so this this is handled slightly differently by different role-playing games. There are simpler ones where you don't need to worry about classes and races and things. Um, I think they are they're considering changing the terminology race, because obviously that has some different connotations, or people are more questionable about connotations of race dictating your stats. But when you first create a character, you might be what is currently still known as races um, or kind of species is kind of you could be a human you could be an elf you could be a dragonborn a large scaly thing you could be a bird person maracocra um and then a class is sort of like your job and it's a very broad term 
And so there are kind of subclasses and colleges of interest within each of those, but they largely dictate um, your skills and abilities and what you can do. And so a wizard is a class. Obviously, that's some kind of uh, magic user, but it's not the only one. You can get things like warlocks and sorcerers, and they're all basically a slightly different flavor of spellcaster, each with its own pros and cons. And then you get classes like fighter and barbarian, which are at the opposite end of the spectrum, in that they rarely have access to any magical abilities at all. A paladin is basically some kind of holy knight, although there are lots of different twists that you can put on it. They lie somewhere in the middle of the magical spectrum because they can gain access to a moderate level of spellcasting through whatever god they fight for. Although they do still tend to be slightly closer to the fighty end of the scale, especially at lower levels. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, the the character that I'm always drawn to tends to be... Uh... Like the rogue, which hasn't been mentioned yet, but the, they're quite mysterious. They like to hide in the shadows. They, they, you can get involved sort of with magic and um, that sort of thing with a rogue, but you can also play it as just somebody who just uses like physical um, aggression. I guess yeah. is the way to put it. But a lot of it is um, like being sneaky, maybe a little bit manipulative, hiding in the shadows, pickpocketing, hmm. like finding traps, that sort of thing. So there's there's something for everyone, really. And I think I always find it really interesting knowing what sort of characters people enjoy playing. I think it says a lot about the person. <laughs> yeah, when you named like those different ones just then, you said like scaly dragon and I was just like, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was so close to making up a dragonborn character sheet for you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh it, it's really interesting hearing about all the different things. And I guess like when it comes to the whole like PGR thing and you're in a nerd, like you were saying, Rory, it's the I guess it's a time to kind of let your imagine your imagine your imagination run wild in like a different way. Because I guess being the PGR, we're not necessarily confined to what we're doing because we're exploring different things, but we're exploring things within an avenue and we're working so hard on it. That I guess when you get to use your imagination to do anything, yeah, I wonder if that's why a lot of PGRs end up turning towards like the role playing games and stuff. Yeah, I think uh, Luca was talking to me the other day actually about a concept I hadn't heard of before, which is multi potentiality, which is just a fancy word for saying interested in or good at a lot of different things. Because I think there is a frustration generally amongst PGRs that we are not just our thesis, the majority of us. I like glaciers, I like ice, I like chemistry. I also like philosophy. I like random other things that are so far removed from what I spend my day-to-day -day life studying. That having this second world, different character, different ways to interact is really quite fulfilling. Yeah, and I think, I think it can be a really good form of like escapism as well so I said I like playing rogues I am quite the opposite to a rogue I am very cheery very just like wanting to have conversations with people very upbeat and that is very different so I think a lot of the time people will choose to play a character who's very different to who they they maybe are in reality because it it's just a chance to you know it's almost like acting in a way like it, it basically is really um 
And the the more you sort of get immersed into this character, the more rewarding it gets. So the idea of just being able to get stuck into this fantasy world and play somebody who's completely different to yourself, it can it can be challenging, but it can also just be really fun. And like I said, a, a, a bit of escapism, really, because research can be difficult. Research can be so hard. And I know there's been times when I'd been really struggling with like writing up, for example, when I was writing up my thesis. And then I would hop onto Discord and have a, an online D&D session. And I would feel so much better afterwards because it was just it was just that little break I needed. And I know earlier you mentioned like that you had um, a background in theatre and stuff like that. And you, you, I think you said that was your undergrad that you did? Yes. Theater. Do you think that helped with this? And what would you say to, I guess, other PGRs who don't have that kind of theatre practical background? Or, I mean, I used to do presenting as well. And so it's, I feel like I'm more inclined towards it because of that. If you don't have necessarily the more creative background are there limits to what you can do how do you get into it and how would you encourage other people without that background to kind of still go for it yeah sure I think another another common way that you can get involved and create a character is think of somebody you know whether that's a character that already exists whether that's a celebrity whether that's just somebody in your life you know it doesn't necessarily need to be a 10 page long backstory you could literally just have a sentence that just defines this person you could come up with something that doesn't have to be huge and really extensive just something that you find interesting so it might even be that you've not particularly ever done any any role-playing games before you've never done any acting before but if you can think about how this character on this TV show that you watched or this film that you watched or this book that you read acted and how they approach things. Like that's a really good step in the right direction, I think. You can write the perfect backstory in three words. They are, I am Aragorn. (laughs) You can basically say, this was a really interesting character and I'm not going to deviate far from them at all. I'm just going to imagine how they would react to this whole set of situations. And that's a completely valid way to play. You might want to make a few changes. You might want to make big changes. You might want to merge two entirely different things. Like, what if we combine Aragorn with Oliver Twist? Then what do you get? I'm trying to think, what do you get? Um... (laughs) Mechanically, I think you'd end up with someone that's multi-classing into both Rogue and Ranger. Yes. (laughs) Now now I want to play that character. (laughs) I've I've opened up Pandora's box. (laughs) Which is, is, again, I don't think it's ever a bad thing in D&D. I think, really, you asked earlier, Olivia, if there's any limits. And I don't think there are, really, as long as your game master or your dungeon master is happy for you to do something. Because every role-playing game has its standard set of rules. But Mm. a lot of game masters or dungeon masters, you know, will maybe edit those rules or have some of their own. That basically means that every game is its own. Every game is individual. And I think that's another thing that makes it really interesting because you you just don't, you're not confined as much as you could be with, you know, say like a board game, for example. Um, the sky's the limit, really. Mm. The actual um, Dungeon Master's Guide, which I have right here, uh, and the Player's Handbook, both do say that the rules are more just guidelines, which is a really nice way to think about it, is here's a kind of basic template for how you can do some collaborative storytelling 
and you can use a bit of chance to work out whether or not things go well for you or whether you have to adapt. And then if you can't think of a way to do a specific thing, you can check one of their many big books, but you don't have to do it their way. There are so many correct ways to play. So I guess having you both just said there's not exactly rules, I'm not going to ask what the rules are and said, what are the mechanics, I guess, of how how it works? So when you start, I'm assuming like a campaign is like another word for game then. So how do you start a campaign mechanically? How does it work? How, I guess you can play for however long you want, but I guess how many people are involved? How does the story somewhat start? How does it go by taking turns? How, how does it all like mechanically work? So mechanically, you can basically condense D&D down into three steps that are then repeated over and over and over. Um, so firstly, you've got the dungeon master or game master, whoever is running it, will describe your environment. It's kind of what you see, what you hear, what's happening around you. And then the players, uh, you know, individually or as a group, will then decide on what their actions are. And that could be something really simple, like I walk over there, I say hello, um, or it could be something more complicated, like casting a spell or convincing a guard to let you past. Um, and then thirdly, the person running the game will decide whether or not you need to roll some dice to work out how well something went. And so if, if you're just walking on a stable surface, they're very unlikely to make you roll to check you don't fall over, because that's something that most people can do relatively successfully most of the time. You don't want to roll away the stupid things. Um, but it might decide, if you are trying to convince that guard to let you through, whether the guard does, whether the guard is unsure, or whether the guard straight up tries to arrest you. Which is why dice rolls are sort of so integral to the identity of D&D. Because you can formulate the best plan in the world, but if the dice say no, then you're still in trouble. Um, which is where a lot of the drama is. Um, so yeah, that's mechanically, that basically just happens on a loop and... Do you want to handle the how you start a campaign question? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> really, it's completely up to the game master or dungeon master how many people they want to be involved. A lot of the time, I think it depends on the experience level of that person and how much they feel willing to take on. And also whether they have a specific uh, maybe task or like game or plot in mind because often that will maybe require a certain amount of characters for that to happen um, and then you go through character creation um, and again that involves the dice so you'll be rolling the dice according to certain skills uh, so strength dexterity constitution intelligence wisdom they're they're like your your main sort of skills that you'll be you'll be rolling for um and then there are there are other things that come into those. So, for example, um, something that comes under intelligence is investigation. Something that comes under charisma is uh, performance or deception. So there's lots of things that link into those skills. Uh, but the way that you roll at the beginning of the game completely could completely change your character. So it's it's never worth getting too committed to the idea of a character before you've rolled. Some game masters and dungeon masters might let you sort of tweak your dice rolls a bit if you've got a really certain idea for a character but often it is just fun to roll the dice see what you come up with and then basically take a step back and think oh okay I've got a really really intelligent character here I've got a character with really high intelligence but their dexterity is poor 
what can I do with this? How can I, how can I act on that? And one of the, one of the things that I always find really interesting is that intelligence and wisdom are very, they're specified as being completely different. So I often quite like playing with, okay, but so what if someone's got really high intelligence, but really low wisdom or vice versa and like seeing the sort of character that that creates. Uh, so again, just showing just how integral the dice are really, that they really can just set the, set up your character completely then set the tone of of how how every every session in a campaign can go because you can like Rory said you can have the best plan you can have a really really strong character that you know there's a, there's a character sheet in front of me right now that says that I have a, a like a nine in passive wisdom which is you know also known as perception so that means I would I would add a nine onto my dice roll but or does it not 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 in D D. Oh my goodness! You're... I am I am I am using my other role playing game knowledge in there. I am so sorry. Future Rory here. Just to say that Lou was so close on this one. If she'd picked any of the skills above it, then she'd have been absolutely right that you add the number onto your die roll. Unfortunately, she happened to pick on passive perception, which is the stat for what a character notices when they're not actively paying attention. For instance hearing a noise in the forest whilst they're having a chat or cooking or something. There is also a stat for active perception, which you would use just as Lou described. But this passive version is basically just a stat that the game master will use to determine if you notice something out of the ordinary, usually someone trying to sneak up on you. But yeah, basically, sometimes when you roll things, you'll you'll add that onto your dice roll and you'll think, oh, OK, I've got a plus four in this. So I'll I'll roll the dice and I'll get plus four. That's one of my highest skills that that will mean I'll have a good result. But that doesn't necessarily mean that because you're you're rolling the dice at the end of the day. You could roll a 19, you could roll a three, and that will massively then change the reaction. So your character can be led up to be this, this amazing archer, for example, but every archer has a bad day. And today might be your archer's bad day. So taking it back a step, what's up with the dice? Like... <laughs> Because obviously there's loads of different, loads of different dice, loads of different sides. Why are there so many different ones? Do you need all of them? I can see you opening a box to show me all the dice right now. Um, so what what's the deal? How do you end up going from, uh, I don't know, like, a, do you even use, I was going to say four-sided dice. That doesn't even make sense. I've, or does that make sense? There is. It's called a D4. It's right here. It's like a little pyramid. Oh, cool. Okay. It does exist. The way you roll this is basically whatever, but there are two ways. Either they'll have a number on the bottom and it's the bottom that counts. Or in the case of this one, there are numbers around the vertices and it's, and they are, there are multiple numbers per side. And so when all of them are pointing at the top, that is the number that you roll. Oh. And so, yeah, um, all, all of these dice do get rolled. Some of them are a lot more than others. The really important one is the 20-sided die, the D20. Um, this is the one you use for all ability kind of skill checks. And so that is saying, okay, you want to convince a guard to get let you past, because that's apparently now my default example, um, <laughs> is you'll probably be asked to roll your charisma persuasion score. And you'll basically you'll roll this and then you'll add that score on. So if you're someone who's not got very good charisma, you might roll this number and then take off one or two. If you are very charismatic, you'll roll this and you'll add on, you know, one, two, three. And then basically the person who's running the game in their head, or sometimes they'll tell you, but in their head often they'll have this sort of difficulty check and be like, okay, if this person rolls higher than a 15, then 
the guard is going to be kind of quite agreeable and be like, yeah, no, that makes sense. Of course, go through. Um, and so it, it can be done as a pass or fail. I quite like something stolen from a few other RPGs where it's sort of pass, fail, or slight complication. Like if you just sneak it, they might let you through, but they're also going to be very suspicious kind of thing. So you use the dice in conjunction with the character sheet. Yes. And do you always use them in conjunction with each other, or is there any time when you would roll the dice with without looking at the character sheet? It, it, it's rare. They, you do get occasions where you might roll just a d20 just for luck, for something that is not really to do with your character. The, um, the, the general concept is that dice represent random chance in the universe, and your character sheet re represents what you're good and bad at and sort of how you can influence favour. It's kind of the idea of you make your own luck. If you're very strong, you're much more likely to be able to move this big boulder. Um, you can do, it's either with sometimes a d20 and sometimes what they call a d100, which is rolling uh, two ten-sided dice, and one of them will do the tens column and the other one does the units column. And they can be used for all kinds of random crazy things. Normally when a d100 comes out, something weird's about to go down. Like there's someone who deals with wild magic and sort of as a side effect of whatever they're doing, you roll on a huge, huge table of numbers. Whatever number you get with your D100 effect, you know, chooses the side effect. And I've had a friend in a campaign randomly grow a massive beard that they just then had. Um, it made a random floating cloud creature called a flump appear for a while. It can just make everyone blow up. It's, yeah... It's a it's a way of really messing with whatever you got planned because you're going to have to respond to this number. Yeah, and then I guess the other way that I'm most familiar with using dice is like a D4 or a D8 for using a weapon. Um, so each weapon has a sort of dice value that's assigned to it according to how much damage that weapon could potentially do. Um, so something that's written on the the sheet in front of me is um, apparently my, my character has a rapier, which does 1d8 plus 3's piercing damage. So if I were to use that rapier and successfully hit somebody, I would roll that d8 to figure out how much damage was done and then plus, plus the 3 onto that. Okay, so you use the different dice for different hmm. things. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, a, a d20, if you think more kind of about dice and probability, there is a, a huge range of numbers and all relatively equally likely. It might be that if you wanted to have something with more consistent for a weapon, you wanted it to always be doing roughly between 5 and 10 damage. You're not going to want to roll a d10. You might prefer to roll two d6s. You know, two d6s, you're most more likely to get a 7 because the extreme values are less likely. To, you're less likely to roll two ones or two sixes than you are on a d12 to roll a 1 or a 12. And so sort of the point of the smaller dice, A, for damage, you know, you, I've given you guys a couple of level 1 character sheets to look at. You've got under significantly under 20 hit points, and so you don't want to roll a d20 and accidentally kill someone on their first go. Um, and so one, yeah, weapons, especially earlier on, will be doing a lot less damage, and it's, that's one reason to use the smaller dice. And then sometimes you'll see... 2d8 damage you know you'll see something where you're rolling two of the same die and that will give you a kind of a safer average rather than the kind of really extreme swingy d20 d100 i love like hearing you talk about it like this because you can see where the super nerdiness can come into it too 
<laughs> oh, it's there like... are so many videos about probability in Dean. <laughs> I, I guess it's like you can you can do it from like a a storytelling perspective, and like you were saying, letting your mind run wild and do whatever you want. But then you can also, I guess, look into it in more detail and look at the probabilities of everything that you're doing and think about everything more and I guess the more you get involved in the game and the longer you play for the more you become to know these probabilities kind of like by heart I guess rather than yeah. just like rolling it and things because like for me you explaining that just then I was like oh okay um <laughs> whereas yeah <laughs> I would just be like oh okay um I've got to die so I'll roll it and, and see what happens oh oh no I've died um I feel like that's probably how I would I would start to try and get a hang of it. Um, so yeah, you can totally see how the the different levels and the different interests that people would have. And if you're any way inclined with that like inner nerdiness, you can take it in so many different levels by the sounds of it. Yeah. And you might also find that your feel for the numbers will vary a lot depending upon who you're playing with. Because if there's a campaign that's sort of very story driven, then they might not make you roll as much. They might, you know, there might be a bit more uh actual role playing where you try and convince them and the person running the game thinks oh you did a good enough job kind of playing your character i'm not going to make you roll for that i'm just going to say it works or they might give you a really low check where the role is likely to happen versus the kind of more grindy yeah more grindy games where people are like there's a low probability of anything working i want you to roll a 30 out of 20 which is genuinely something they can make you do with all of the modifiers Oh, wait, a 30 out of 20? Yeah, it, it it's it's mentioned in the guide as something that's virtually impossible. And, you know, you've got your kind of, your character sheet has your modifiers. You, you might have a plus five in something. I guess my ongoing campaign I've got, I'm a uh, multi-class bard and rogue. And my stealth, my dexterity stealth has a modifier of plus 10. Meaning if I roll a 20 and I have a plus 10, I can basically sneak directly in front of someone and there's a high likelihood they won't notice me. Not everything is done out of 20, but on the normal everyday scale of things, you know, a 15 is really good. Be very happy with a 15. It's only if you're in a very difficult world with a particularly mean DM that you might be expected to roll 30 out of 20. Yeah. And there are there are other ways that you can influence the story and like particular role-playing games as well. So recently somebody's introduced me to Savage Worlds, which is a slightly different role-playing game. And they use things called bennies and they can be used. Basically you get a certain amount. And if you're maybe a certain class or playing a particular character, you can get extra, extra bennies because your character is known as being stereotypically lucky. Um, and they can be used for things like influencing the story re-rolling something so they're they're another way that maybe if you're like oh I rolled really badly on that but for the sake of how I want the plot to go I really really need to be able to roll this again or you can use it for say you're meeting a new character and the more you're seeing this character the more you're like oh I think my character's met this character before I want us to have a bit of a backstory so you can use a Benny to influence that and basically almost bargain with the game master or dungeon master to be like I would like to use this little token that you've given me to influence the story to basically work my character into a bit more or give my character a better chance and I guess it's sort of similar to inspiration 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was I was just going to say that it sounds a lot like inspiration, which is a mechanic that they added into one of the more recent editions of D&D. And essentially, inspiration is a single-use token that a player can use to reroll an attack, saving throw, or ability check. Basically, anything that requires a d20. It's awarded to players on the DM's discretion, and it's largely intended to be a way to reward your players for playing true to their character. So, for instance, I was once running a game for a group of friends who were in a bit of a boss fight with someone who could turn himself invisible. And one of my players, Tasha, tried to roll a perception check in order to hear his footsteps. But she rolled very, very poorly. And so I told her that she had heard some footsteps to her left, which were actually the footsteps of one of her fellow party members. Now, Tasha knew that she'd rolled badly, so she knew the information that I was giving her was probably incorrect. But her character, Zuri, didn't. And so Zuri turned and fired an arrow straight at her friend. Obviously not good for the party, but it was good commitment to only using the knowledge that her character had. So I awarded Tasha inspiration for how she'd managed to play as Zuri. So yeah, inspiration is a really nice way to incentivize people to play characters who make mistakes or who have obvious flaws, because you can then reward the player with this token, a lot like a Benny, that they can use to manipulate their odds at a point in the story where it really matters. Personally, I also like to award inspiration when my players make me laugh, because I think it encourages a fun, lighthearted atmosphere, but that's more of a house rule than it is an actual rule of D&D. I think at this point, I don't know if you wanted to talk specifically about any other role-playing games. We've obviously touched on a few already, but it's probably worth talking about how many options are out there, especially if you want something with fewer rules or fewer dice or you're just not so into that high fantasy aesthetic that we generally associate with D&D, then there are so many other RPGs out there that I've heard great things about. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the ones I've played is, is Pathfinder, which in many ways is quite similar to D&D, but just some of the mechanics are work, uh, working a little bit differently. Then I mentioned Savage Worlds as well, but another one that I'm I'm really keen to play because I, I, I've watched quite a lot of YouTube videos on it um, is Blades in the Dark. Um, Rory is uh, d- dancing in a way <laughs> that, that makes it seem like he's happy that I said that. Um, so Rory, Blades in the Dark. Blades in the Dark is a wonderful game that I've also not had a chance to play, but I know all of the rules by heart yep, because I really here. like it. Um, I'm going to ask you afterwards what you've been watching about Blades in the Dark. Um, <laughs> one of the really interesting things about Blades in the Dark is you get straight in there in the action. There's a lot less planning, but then you have the ability to have these flashbacks. I generally feel like the average Blades in the Dark session is a bit like a Guy Ritchie film. Where <laughs> that's kind of, such a good way of describing it. You're straight because it, it's it's also it's got a slightly darker, more actiony vibe than Dungeons and Dragons. It's quite often you'll be playing thieves or something, and you go straight into a heist of some sort, and then you have a flashback to something you did in your preparation, where basically something comes up, and then one of the players will stop and set and explain what they did in the preparation, and there are mechanics that determine how well these flashbacks go to see if your preparations were good enough for when you encounter the actual thing. 
you can't do that infinitely. It's not like Deus Ex Machina all the time. And another really cool thing they have about it, which I thought of when you mentioned bargaining, is that you can make some kind of bargain with the game master where they will give you an advantage of some sort for now, but there will be a cost. There's some kind of devil's bargain going on. Don't if you've got any examples off the top of your head. Oh my goodness. Not off the top of my head, no. But I mean, I have an example of um, like a flashback. So for example, if you've you've gone into this heist, you get into a room and there's say a riddle on the door in a language that you're not familiar with, you can say, oh, well, I'd like to do a flashback. And in the like maybe days before this, I studied up on this language because I knew that the house that we were going into had family members that were familiar with this language. So I thought it would be beneficial for me to brush up on my language skills. So then if that flashback then goes well, I have a higher chance of being able to then decipher that riddle in this language that I maybe previously wasn't familiar with. So you can like make up a reason why you would be better at something because you did something in the past, but you're making up that thing in the past and then you're seeing how well or not you did that thing. Yes. (laughs) Um, And so my so, some of my friends who have played some Dungeons and Dragons with me are a lot less keen on character creation and backstory and preparation. I personally love it. I've written huge, huge documents about random stories that are shaped why my character is the way they are now because I'm a nerd and I've read Tolkien et al. Um, however, I've got friends who are less keen on that. And so the idea of Blades in the Dark is you can decide at the time what would have been useful for you to do. You get into the action a lot more quickly. Whereas in that situation, Dungeons and Dragons, if no one speaks the language, you can't suddenly make it that someone speaks the language. There is admittedly a spell called Comprehend Languages, which can get around that. But yeah, D&D is all about preparation. Glades in the dark, you ad hoc things. Yeah, there's a lot more, obviously, but they're all role-playing games. They they all require an element of role-playing and thinking on your feet. But I think Blades in the Dark has a lot more of in the spur of the moment, how are you going to make this work? Which is much like doing a PhD. <laughs> and then obviously this is PGR cast. So just thinking about the type of people that you've both played with in the past, how many how many other people have like a PGR background um, in like the campaigns that you've had before? How, how many people do you know that have got into it through being a researcher or from doing their degree or something like that? Um, how well from both of your experiences does it link up? And I'm assuming it's going to be slightly biased because you're both PGRs and therefore I would assume that you have, you're more likely to have PGR friends as well. I'm, so a lot of my friends from home growing up, you know, not all of them went to uni. Those that did, no one else is doing a PhD, but we are all cut from the same cloth. We're all quite similar people one way or another. And they all got into it sort of through being exposed to me and I got into it through being exposed to some fun master students and so it, it is it's often word of mouth and it's not something that is exclusively in the PGR community but I also know that in in geography that we have we have massive geography office that a lot of people got into going down to chance encounters our local board game cafe and getting into increasingly complicated board games I think that for a lot of people is a stepping stone from normal tabletop games into role-playing games. Yeah, I know 
a lot of PGRs that that play D&D. And I wouldn't even say that I know a lot of people from one particular faculty. Um, I know people spread throughout every faculty at Bristol that are involved in various D&D campaigns that, you know, maybe they maybe they started playing when they were a teenager. Maybe they've sort of grown up with it just being a hobby. But I also know so many PGRs who, when they arrived at Bristol, had some knowledge of what it was, but had never really played before. And then got talking to other PGRs who also had heard of it and were intrigued, but had never played before. And suddenly you're forming an adventuring party. Suddenly there's a campaign coming. Um, and I think one of the the really positive things about being a PGR and having a, a strong PGR community is that you can meet people who will have these interests. Like I can guarantee if there's any hobby really that you have heard of, that you've considered trying, but have maybe been a bit apprehensive because you don't you don't know maybe who you'd engage in that hobby with. There will be another PGR at Bristol who is looking to do the same thing. It's just about about finding them really. And that's it for part one of our RPG PGR extravaganza. Come back in two weeks' time if you'd like to hear answers to more of Olivia's questions, like how the media has affected our perceptions of D&D, and how RPGs can help you with your thesis. If I can leave you with just one thing to get you through the next two weeks, it's that people who play tabletop role-playing games are like rats. You might not see them, but you're never far away from one, especially somewhere like a university. This episode of the PGR cast was produced, hosted, and edited by Rory Burford and Olivia Reddy. Thanks go to friend of the show Lou Macy for her valuable time, and to the Bristol Doctoral College for providing equipment, space, and financial support. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider following the PGR cast on your podcasting platform of choice and leaving us a like, review, or comment. You can also message us directly with the tag at PGRcast on Twitter where we'd be very happy to answer any nerdy questions that you happen to have, D&D or otherwise. <laughs>